Yes, we are. We are back in business. So, I was thinking about... We can discuss the land tax. We can discuss your prestige as one who has predicted the housing crisis, predicted it early on. I think that will be a big selling point to attract people to the podcast. Yes. Something you could definitely advertise more ferociously. Yeah. It's your name on the map. (laughs) Although I'm not... I don't run an academic economic circle, so I don't know exactly everyone's relative fame. But a rough idea. Starting to get it, talking to you guys. So those are the topics I was thinking about covering, and I also read your policy study. Decentralization is something a lot of my friends are into. Mm -hmm. So that would also be a good topic to discuss. And are there any you would like to talk about? I've also written on uh, private communities. Uh, You know, my book, Public Goods and Private Communities, how uh, contractual communities can provide uh, collective services. Okay. Then we've got a show. Yeah. Okay. Let us begin. Three, two, one. Hello, Dr. Fulver. Hello, Adam. Nice to have you on the show. Good to be here. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the man, one of the men who predicted the big housing crisis back in 2008. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, I've been doing uh, research on business cycles and the role of real estate in the business cycle for uh, many years, and uh, so I wrote an article that was published in 1997 uh, combining the Austrian school theory that focuses on the money supply and interest rates with the Henry George's theory that focuses on land issues into a synthesis that is more complete and explains better than any other theory that I know of. So basically... uh, The theory is that subsidies to real estate is the main cause of the real estate cycle, and the real estate cycle drives the business cycle. And uh, then uh, I looked into then then of course you wanted to see how the theory fits the history, and uh, and one of the major uh, books on the history of uh, land values is uh, by Homer Hoyt, the real estate economist who looked at the land values in Chicago, particularly where you have the best data. And he found that uh, there's been a boom and bust cycle in real estate uh, for the past 200 years with an average period of 18 years. You have the uh, depression of the 1830s, the 1850s, 1870s, 1890s, and so on up to the 1920s boom, where you had a real estate boom along with the stock market boom. And the real estate market peaked out in 1925, followed by the depression in 1929. And so that's continued to the present day with, with minor variations. So I was able to explain the theory using both Austrian school and George's uh, theories of the business cycle and look at the data. It fit the data, you know, quite well. And so, so, uh, Basically, all I did was realize that the previous uh, 
uh, real estate-based recession was in 1990, and at the average of 18 years continued, you get into 2008. So back in 1997, I explained why the business cycle happens and the most likely next date for the major uh, recession would be 2008. Now, it could have come a little earlier. It could have come a little later. As it happens, it came right on schedule. That is remarkable that any sort of pattern emerges in economics yeah. something so complex and vast. Yeah. And also, throughout all throughout the past 200 years, we have major changes in taxation. The government has grown larger, all kinds of uh, different uh, innovations in finance, and yet the basic pattern has remained the same, and that is subsidies to real estate. Now, can you... Explain what these subsidies are and how they work yeah. and why they have such detrimental effects. Right. So <clears throat> you have monetary subsidies and fiscal subsidies. The monetary subsidy is the expansion of the money supply, such as by the Federal Reserve, and that expansion lowers interest rates. It's an artificial lowering caused by cheap credit. And uh, as the Austrian theory says, the money is uh, loaned out to the higher order goods, re uh, mainly real estate. Real estate is a third of investment. And the investments most sensitive to the interest rate are those that have a long duration. So real estate uh, gets a lot of its financing from borrowing. So uh, so you have uh, investment in construction and also the purchase of land, because real estate is land and buildings. Right, so cheap credit fuels uh, purchases of land and, and construction. That's not sustainable because when interest rates go back up, then these projects stop and the people employed there get laid off. They demand fewer goods and the economy falls. The other subsidy is the, the fiscal subsidy, fiscal meaning government revenue and spending. Right, so, uh, so the main point is that government spending, uh, creates higher land values. The goods that people want, like streets, highways, security, fire protection, parks, good schools, and so on, all make land more productive and more attractive. So that raises land rent and land value. Most of it is paid for by taxes on labor and goods. And therefore, landowners, in effect, get a huge subsidy because their taxes are lower uh, because of tax credits, and they can deduct property taxes, they deduct mortgage interest, they can sell property tax-free, and so on. So, so the fiscal and monetary subsidies to real estate uh, create an artificial boom because as the economy expands, much of the gain from economic progress and expansion is captured by higher land rent and land values. And then speculators jump in. If they see real estate going up, they can make a fortune by borrowing, you know, and based on their down payment, they can double and triple their money. So you have a real a speculative demand on top of the real demand, which is unsustainable. When real estate prices rise and interest rate prices rise, that boom ends. And then when real estate crashes, it takes the financial down, the financial sector down with it because of all the mortgages and derivatives based on the underlying real estate. So so that's basically how the subsidies work. And why they contribute to this vicious cycle. Yeah.
and it's happening all over again. We've had a recovery of real estate. The unemployment is going back down. The economy is slowly recovering. It'll accelerate. And uh, so we have the beginnings of another real estate boom. It's going to happen all over again because the basic causes are not being remedied. Well, Geo-Austrian yeah. is what you call yourself, That's correct? Yeah. And for those who don't know, can you explain what the term means? Yeah. Uh, the Austrian comes from the Austrian, Austrian School of Economics, which started in Austria but is now worldwide. It's uh, Some of its concepts have been absorbed by mainstream economics, but not all of it. They have a, a theory of capital goods and a business cycle theory that has not been absorbed by the mainstream, so it remains a distinct school of thought. The geo, it has a double meaning. Geo, of course, referring to land and earth as in geometry and geography. And geo happens to be the first three letters of the name of Henry George, who is the main uh, proponent of of uh, using land rent for public revenue as a single tax. If, if you tax labor, you get less labor. If you tax capital, you get less capital. But if you tax land, you don't get any less land. So land cannot flee, shrink, or hide from the tax collector. You wrote, the effect of shifting public revenue from labor and capital to land would be to liberate human action from the disincentives currently imposed by other taxes. And that's a really nice summary of the philosophy, because, of course, human action is a phrase that Hayek used. And Mises, yeah. And, yes. Oh, Hayek was inspired by Henry George, oddly enough. At first, yes, he actually uh, read Henry George, Progress and Poverty, and that got him interested in economics, but he didn't do anything with that particularly. He did mention it in one book, The Constitution of Liberty, where he says that if you could separate land values from building values, that would be the best. He called it socialist plan, <laughs> although, you know, it's, it's odd to call it socialist because you can consider any tax to be socialist. So, yes, twice, I mean, I recall an, an anecdote about Mises in a meeting of monetarists, and he said, you're all a bunch of socialists, and stormed out. <laughs> because they believe in uh, central banks. Exactly. And you mentioned Milton Friedman endorsing the land value tax, the least bad tax. That's right. When Milton Friedman and Adam Smith agree that ground rent or land value is the best or at least worst tax, that has to be something to consider. Yeah. It's high praise from Friedman, that's for sure. And looking at, now you believe that land value tax will contribute to decentralization. In what ways will it do this? Well, and why is decentralization such a good thing? Well, you think of the income tax. If you had state income taxes and no federal income tax, there would be tax competition because a higher tax, you know, drives away business to lower tax areas. So income tax has, so by having the federal Government levy most of the income taxes, and then revenue sharing. You know, it comes from the people in the first place, but then the, the federal government collects it and distributes it to the states. And revenue sharing, 
in effect, the states have a tax cartel, an organization to avoid tax competition. Same thing with sales tax. You can only go so far with sales taxes if the neighboring states have no sales taxes or lower sales taxes. So there's tax competition. But with a land tax, uh, if you tax land value, the land's not going to run away to another state. Yes. Uh, so you can tax land up to almost all the rent without uh, the effect of tax comp. There's no tax competition. The land won't run away, and the businesses that use land won't, won't run away. So, um, so it promotes decentralization. So whereas the income tax and the sales taxes promote centralization to prevent tax competition, a land tax can be fully decentralized without any tax competition. Uh, in fact, it's a tax competition in a good way because other places that don't have a land tax will see, hey, here's a place with a land tax. They're doing much better. Let's let's copy this. Right? Why is decentralization uh, better? Well, because when the federal government tries to manage a large portion of the economy, it just can't do that efficiently. Uh, that was one of the Austrian critiques of socialism. It's inefficient to, just like when I have a, if you have a huge corporation that tries to centrally manage all its production, it's, there's the inefficiencies because of the scale is too large. So it decentralizes into divisions and departments that are somewhat uh, self-supporting. So same thing with government. Uh, if it's smaller, more local, it, it's uh, more responsive to what the people want instead of what special interests want. And that idea of being able to manage so many different situations is the pretense of knowledge. Right. Yeah, that's how I <laughs> Well, the man could coin a phrase. Now, decentralization is being assisted more and more by technology. Yes. Are you well read on cryptocurrencies? Do you follow them or any other disruptive software? I, I know about them. I'm not a expert on them. And I don't don't haven't used Bitcoin myself, but I I have followed it and uh, I'm interested in it. And you think perhaps it could become a medium of exchange, not Bitcoin itself, but possibly a descendant of it. I think they can be competitors, especially if the value is stable. One good fe a feature of good money is its price stability. And uh, if the price fluctuates widely, then it's not a good medium of exchange. Uh, so I think, and also um, people have to see that as uh, something that benefits the public rather than a few speculators trying to make the most of it. But uh, So I think it has potential as a competitor to currency, but um, I don't see it taking over because uh, people are used to, you know, a, a currency has a unit of account. We count in dollars. Europeans count in euros. Uh, so it's hard to have two or three different units of account because then you have to convert from one to the other, uh, the price of the store, uh if, it, if the currencies fluctuate in with one another, you can't just post both prices because that'll change day by day. So, uh, so I think uh, it's unlikely that uh, these currencies will have much effect unless they use the same current of unless they use dollars. If they're denominated in dollars, then they would compete more. But then the federal government would go after them, as it went, for example, after Liberty dollars. Mm, yes, that was quite a debacle. Yeah. 
but I was very young when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> there are there are means of quickly converting them into dollars with merchants, and there is a coin, Vericoin, that allows you to convert it into bitcoins quickly. Yeah. I remember a an essay, a long essay by Hayek about competing currencies. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, again, I, I don't think. It would be practical, to, uh, yes, with computers or even you know uh, iPhones or something. You could you could have an app that would quickly convert one currency to another, uh, but you tend to think in terms of one particular unit of account. Like I think in dollars, I can always convert it to ounces of gold. But I think in terms of dollars when I'm thinking about value. So so I think. Uh, Currencies that have different units of account, I don't think uh, it would, people would want to use a common unit of account. I know there's here in the border between U.S. and Canada, you might be used to Canadian dollars and U.S. dollars. So, I mean, people can handle maybe two currencies, but probably not more than that. And there's an acceptable level of volatility, and Bitcoin has not reached that yet. Right. And I suspect that level is extremely low for most people. And if everybody's accepting dollars and only a few people accept bitcoins, you know, dollars just more right now. Maybe it'll change. And for the majority of goods, you're investing dollars to create them. So it would be more practical for services yeah. that require time. I, th I think if we're going to reform the money and banking system, uh, the best direction of reform is toward uh, free market banking or called free banking uh, rather than, you know, uh, a particular kind of currency. Because and how banking, would free, how would that work? Free banking, you don't have a central bank. The, you have real money, such as what gold used to be, or if we transition to free banking now, you would have a fixed amount of Federal Reserve notes, that would be the real money. And then all future expansion would be by private bank notes. So if he went to a Wells Fargo ATM, out would come Wells Fargo dollars rather than uh, U.S. dollars. But they would have the same unit of account, and you could convert them into Federal Reserve notes anytime you wanted to. So that, would, that convertibility would keep the uh, money supply from uh, inflating. So basically, each bank would have its own currency convertible into the real money, uh, and then the money supply would be based on what the amount people want to hold rather than the arbitrary expansion by a central bank. So do you consider inflation a concern in the near or distant future? Well, not too distant. In the near future, it's not a concern um, because the... The expansion of the money that we've had in the past couple of years is still sitting in the banks. It's not circulating. But once once it starts to circulate, and partly it's not circulating because uh, while the Federal Reserve has been expanding the money supply, they've also been strict in regulating loans. So, for example, mortgages are cheap but difficult to get. Mm. So uh, once the money starts circulating, one, uh, lending standards loosen during a, an expansion. They're already starting to loosen somewhat. So once uh, people can get loans more easily, you'll see greater circulation or what economists call velocity will go up. And then, then you'll see inflation. So it's not imminent, 
but uh, it's quite probable in the next couple of years. And that is something that the Keynesians I spoke to sharply disagree with, but you've been right in the past, and we'll see if it pans out. By the way, uh, if the 18-year pattern continues, we count 18 years from 2008 and get to 2026. So that's the when I would expect the next major crisis and recession and depression. There's a quote here I found interesting. Another error made even by academic economists is to confuse the supply of land for a particular use. Yes. Could you elaborate on that statement yeah. and discuss its ramifications? Some economists have said that uh, the supply of land is not fixed because you can, say, convert forest land to residential, or you can uh, drain water from the ocean. And, uh, you know, like uh, in the San Francisco Bay, they filled in part of the bay to make airports. Uh, so, Or in Holland, they've expanded the, the farms by going into the ocean and hiking it. Uh, but that... So... <clears throat> That confuses the supply for a particular use from the general supply. The, the total amount of land as a number of acres within some jurisdiction is fixed. Uh, land is very expensive in the San Francisco Bay Area where I live, but you can't import cheap land from Nevada and you can't have a land factory to produce more acres. So the total quantity of land is fixed. The supply offered for sale can change. If you offer more uh, plots for sale that can affect the price for a while just like uh, in the stock market you, there's a difference between the, the total number of shares say of IBM stock and the amount offered for sale in a particular day but in the long run the price of an IBM share will depend on the total number of shares issued rather than the day-to-day -day fluctuations of sales shares offered for sale or purchase so yes the supply of land is not fixed in terms of uh, land offered for sale or purchase, or land for particular uses. But what really counts, say for taxation, is the total quantity of land which is fixed. And the fact that, so land is fixed both in quantity and in location. It can't move and it, and it can't expand. Exactly. And, and there are vast tracts of unused land, but they're not in particularly desirable locations. Right. We call that submarginal land. <laughs> it's a very polite term. It's politically correct. Yeah, yeah some some critics of land value taxation says, uh, why is land a problem? There's you know miles and miles of unused land, right? But that, but that that's irrelevant. What uh, where land is scarce and has a rent, that's where the issue is. And another bit here. Income taxes punish savings, but sales taxes punish borrowing. That's right, yeah. When you uh, save money and the interest is taxed, right, it's uh, penalizing you for, for savings. It's uh, reducing your return. And if you combine that with inflation, it's even worse because the U.S. government taxes nominal interest. You know, that if you're getting 6% interest, that's the number. You get $6 out of 100 But if there's inflation, then uh, some of that money is just to make up for rising prices. But the government includes that in the tax. Uh, so that reduces your return even more. 
On the other hand, uh, a sales tax punishes borrowing. Suppose you want to buy a car and the car costs $20,000, which you you have to borrow the whole $20,000. But there's also a $10,000 sales tax. You have to borrow another $10,000 to buy the car and then pay interest on that extra borrowing. So that penalizes borrowing. So there's no good economic reason to penalize savings versus borrowing. Some people say want to move to a consumption tax instead of an income tax. They think it's better to tax consumption. But the whole purpose of the economy is consumption. That's why we have an economy. So consumption is a good thing, not a bad thing that has to be penalized. And over a lifetime, we borrow as much as we lend. We consume as much as we produce, right? So it all balances out. And you mentioned demand earlier. What role does aggregate demand play in your thought? Because I thought that was a nasty word to Austrians because of its association with Keynes. Yeah, some Austrians, they don't like aggregates in general, but, you know, which I, I disagree with that. I mean, if you, if you add up everybody's income, you get aggregate income. So that's just the, the fact. Uh, so aggregate demand is just the demand by all people for all the goods and services of the economy. It's not a particularly Keynesian concept. You know, if you add up how much I want to buy, how much you want to buy, and add everybody's purchases, you get the total. Oh, well, of course, um, it, it should be part of any model, but it's associated with yeah, them. Yeah, but uh, then you get the, uh, an aggregate demand curve. It's a it's like a demand curve for goods, except it's for the demand for all goods and services. So instead of the price of a good, you have the price level, which is the average level of prices measured by some price index, and then you have output. So you have a downward sloping aggregate demand, which means why? Because with, uh, with the same amount of money, if prices are lower, you buy more stuff, right? So, so, so that creates the downward supply, uh, the, the downward demand for my, for all goods, aggregate demand curve. So there's really nothing Keynesian about it. It's just a, a way of analyzing the macroeconomy. And then you have aggregate supply. What is that? It's simply the total supply of all the goods produced. Uh, and we're, and, uh, we're, the intersection where aggregate quantity supplied is equal to aggregate quantity demanded, that where they're equal, that generates the price level. That's the price at which everything that's produced can be bought. I use that in my macroeconomics classes. That sounds about right. So what are your thoughts of Say's Law and supply-side economics? Yeah, yeah Say's Law tells us that... Uh, when goods are supplied, when goods are produced, right, the production pays the factors that produced it. So workers get paid, uh, those who provided capital goods get paid, you pay rent for land. So the input factors get paid, and that payment enables those input factors to demand goods. So a worker produces goods, he gets wages, he uses those wages to buy goods. That wage generates a demand for goods, demand meaning both able and willing to, to buy goods. So therefore, what Say's Law implies is that there cannot be a general overproduction of goods because those who produce the goods will get paid and that payment then buys those goods. So there's no such thing as general overproduction uh, or underconsumption. 
you can have over overproduction in particular goods where the entrepreneur made a mistake, but not there's no general glut of goods. The price level will be set at the level where you know everything produced can be bought. And so, historically speaking, there are no cases in which the majority of industries in the country have been depressed, something akin to a general glut. Yeah, so what happens is, uh, well, first of all, if, if people get incomes and instead of spending their money, they hoard it in cash, they just have like cash in their mattress or in a drawer, yeah, then that money will not be spent. But that's highly unusual. Mm. And then, and I mean, a few people might be hoarding, but general hoarding by the population would only take place if there was already some kind of crisis. So uh, now, uh, when there's a recession, right, it's not caused by general overproduction, it's caused by particular overproduction. As I was talking before about the business cycle, you have an overproduction in those capital goods that are sensitive to the interest rates. Capital goods of long duration, the main one being real estate. So you had excessive construction of housing and other real estate during the boom caused by artificially cheap credit, right? And then when land values go up and interest rates go up, that construction stops. And then people get laid off. So during a recession, yeah, then people can't buy the goods because they've gone out of business. They've been laid off. Uh, but it wasn't caused by a general overproduction, but uh, an overproduction of particular goods. So Hayek's concept of malinvestments, the Austrian concept of malinvestments, is most applicable to real estate. That's right. That's the most important type of overinvestment. So it's really the perfect bride for Georgism. Exactly. This is yeah. And then we add the Austrians forget about the land portion. They think about uh excessive investment in capital goods, which is buildings. Right, but cheap credit also fuels the purchase of land, and 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 these the real estate boom when prices are going up, it's land values that go up, not building values. Right, and that ties into something that I've discussed with other Georges before about the proportion of land in relation to GDP, just how much it makes up, and you touch on this in your paper here. Yeah. Uh, there was a study in Australia of uh, how much of national income is land rent. And uh, so they have pretty good data there and uh, taking all kinds of things into account, all kinds of different types of land and rent. They found that about a third of national income there is land rent. Uh, now, the United States has uh, about the same area as Australia, uh, more if you count Alaska, but if you don't count Alaska, it's about the same area with 10 times the population density. So I would guess if if, if the if in Australia, one-third of national income is rent, it would be at least that in the United States. So about a third of national income is land rent, which if you tax the land rent, that should provide more than enough for the public goods provided by government. It might not be enough for transfer payments, Social Security, Medicare, and so on, because those don't generally don't generate the rent that public goods do. But uh, there's enough for the public goods that government provides. And if you eliminate income taxes uh, on, on wages and taxes on goods, then people should be able to save more and not need Social Security. 
And it seems like we would be much more competitive in the world marketplace. Exactly, right, yeah. There's also in public finance uh, what's called the Henry George theorem. You know, Henry George being the economist and social reformer associated with uh, taxing land value. Uh, the Henry George theorem is is a now part of public finance. It was uh, developed by Joseph Stiglitz, Nobel Prize winning economist, along with a couple of others. It basically says that uh, if you the if you create the optimal amount of public goods, that just about equals the land rent in the economy. In other words, rent in theory should equal the cost of public goods, which which implies that there's enough rent to pay for public goods in theory. Uh, and uh, so that's uh, in contrast to some economists who think, well, yeah, uh, land rent would be better to tax than income and goods, but there's just not very much land rent. Well, that's not true, uh, both in theory and in, in actual data. And there are so many positive benefits that go along with it. And the private sector is able to flourish without unnecessary taxes. Okay. So employment, investment, construction, everything works better. That's right, exactly. So I assume in the long run what we may lose in income, if they are right in their assertions, is more than made up for by what businesses and individuals will yeah. do. If you actually um, count the amount of rent in the economy, you're not going to get a picture of the potential rent because the fact that we have income and sales taxes reduces the profitability of enterprise and therefore reduces the rent that the entrepreneurs are willing to pay. So rent would actually go up substantially once you have all these other taxes removed. Which would be fabulous. And so going back to the topic of innovation, which I think George was prescient about, he understood that capitalism was a great mover of things, of goods, of people. And it's such a shame that he's often categorized with socialists. Yeah, um, he in fact uh, argued with socialists who wanted to socialize not just land but also capital. And um, yeah, it's it's kind of a mindset that people think, well, if you tax land value, aren't you socializing it? Well, first of all, uh, Georgists or followers of George are even more in favor of individual possession than the general public because we would have complete rights of possession as long as you paid the community rent. Today, rights of possession are compromised by restrictions like zoning and also uh, eminent domain. They can just take property and even uh, asset forfeiture where the government can just take your property without any payment, without any conviction of crime. So so Georgia's are in favor of even stronger property rights uh, as long as you pay the rent. I think that's a very strong argument against the idea that he had any socialist sympathies. Right. Moving on to your ideas on decentralizing government, yeah. in which you argue that people are not interested in what public officials are doing because they are far removed from them, and that they may not be informed about a particular issue. Yeah, uh... <clears throat> The uh, branch of economics that studies politics and government is called public choice. 
and uh, that was one of the fields I studied as a graduate student at uh, George Mason University, which is known for its public choice uh, uh, sections. Now, uh, so the typical voter is uh, doesn't is not motivated to learn a lot about the propositions and candidates on the ballot because his one vote is not going to change the election. And what our system is mass democracy. You have thousands or millions of people voting for senator or president or even congressman. Uh, so that creates a, a inherent demand for campaign money. The candidates need to raise millions of dollars to get their image out to the public so they can vote for them, often with negative ads, by the way. So, uh, uh, so the system is inherently corrupting. You have a demand for campaign money, which the special interests are happy to provide in return for subsidies and privileges. And they've attempted to limit it with campaign finance restrictions and so on. But if you restrict too much, then it restricts free speech. It, it uh, goes against the First Amendment. And also, you know, what is more important than speech in politics? So, uh, so since the system is inherently flawed, uh, <clears throat> the remedy is the opposite of large, of mass democracy, which is small group voting. So I've written about, uh, changing democracy where you only vote for a local neighborhood council. So instead of all these propositions and candidates, and these are people you can know, uh, and the candidates can go and make personal appearances, meet people, distribute literature at low cost. So there's no inherent demand for money. I mean, somebody could spend money, but you don't have to, or it can be countered by pointing out this guy's trying to buy the election. So you vote for a neighborhood, neighborhood council, and these neighborhoods, councils vote for the next higher level. Uh, say 20 or 30 will vote for a city council, and the city councils elect the county government. The county boards elect the state legislature. The state legislature elects the Congress. Congress elects the president. So it's a bottom-up, multi-level uh, structure, and that promotes decentralization because power goes from the bottom to the top. Multi-level, huh? Multi-level marketing? <laughs> no, hopefully not. <laughs> There's nothing inherently wrong with multi-levels. It depends on... That's true. Unfortunately, it has gotten a very bad reputation, and deservedly so. From... from uh, yes. From... <laughs> yes. And reverse funnel schemes. Yes. But if you flip them around, they become pyramids. <laughs> I think it's an interesting idea. I, I'm not sure if we will see it applied anywhere at any time, but maybe we will get something like that as as people become more independent from various industries. We need a movement to promote it to get make people aware of it. So that, that there hasn't been a movement for that. But I sometimes wonder if even if people were given that sort of power at the local level, yeah. if they would become interested in politics and apathy is at an all-time high and it seems that people only become interested in politics if they're starving literally starving well uh these protests that we sit in the street uh, show that people are interested in particular issues uh, enough to go into the streets uh now um you would become interested because when you vote for a neighborhood council member 
that guy isn't just going to be working on things locally. That guy is going to be elected, electing people to the next higher level and so on. So now you, be, now you can be, become interested. Now political discussions are not just academic exercises, but actually can affect policy because if you're going to change who you vote, vote for your neighborhood council members, then if, if that changes, they'll vote for different people on the next higher level. So you get leverage from that. Right now, if you want to contact your Congress representative, you're one of many thousands, right? But you have leverage if you can contact your local neighborhood council member. You have influence on him. He influences the next level. And so I think that gives you political leverage by indirect voting rather than by a direct vote where you want millions. On the other hand, a, a protest is something that's crude and brutish and vulgar. It's it's something that people can do at the spur of the moment. On the other hand, consistently voting for people yeah. that suits your interests requires thought. Right, and... but that's probably you know I'm in California where uh, my ballot had like uh, a dozen propositions plus local propositions and uh, candidates you know from the governor down to legislature, Congress, local offices. It's just, you know, who has time to read all that and study that? That's why, uh, you know, people get apathetic. But if you only vote for your council member, then, then you know, it doesn't take much knowledge. Discussions are meaningful, and I think there'd be more participation. So with technologies like 3D printers and the like, you foresee those allowing people to become more self-sufficient and lending to the general scheme of decentralization. Yes, uh, 3D printing um, allows us to make things that were previously imported because now you know you can make something that maybe is labor-intensive and is now imported. So I think it'd be a great. It's going to be a great boon to industry. Uh, and uh, it might contribute to the decentralization. I don't know. Uh, I think there's still the, you know, we have a global economy now, and that's going to stay that way. But uh, well, do you think the two are at odds, decentralization and globalization? Uh, what was that? Oh, do you think the two are at odds, decentralization and globalization? Uh, no, uh, they, they're complementary. You, uh, 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 I think the best thing is a decentralization of governance, but a globalization of production, so that things are produced where the where you know economists call it comparative advantage. You produce those things that you're most efficient at, and then you trade with everybody else. So ideally, there would be far fewer borders, rules, and regulations between nations and within nations. That's right. So it's really a global vision, the, the geo-Austrian one. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because uh, uh, both Georgians and Austrians uh, believe that free trade gives us the greatest productivity, and uh, so we want to do away with any kind of tariffs and internal taxes. Yeah. Henry George called that true free trade because he says if we eliminate tariffs on imports, 
we still have internal tariffs. The sales tax is basically an internal domestic tariff. So true free, free trade would eliminate all barriers to trade. But do you foresee matters of national pride getting in the way? I mean, it seems unlikely that nations would suddenly just want to be free and happy and cooperative all of a sudden. Well, there's the there's the power conflicts. Countries want to be powerful and have spheres of influence, and or or they have territorial ambitions. As you have disputed islands now off China and Philippines and Vietnam. Uh, Japan claim the same islands. So uh, I think nationalism and uh, imperialism are going to be around for a long time. And will probably interfere with this occurring in a bottom-up yeah. or bottom-down fashion. There has, to be, there has to be a movement for that. Uh, people have to become aware of it. Yeah, maybe I should do more on it. It, the transition would definitely be painful, but if the benefits became apparent to everyone, then it has to come slowly. And that's something you discuss in your paper, is how we would transition from what we have to a land value tax. Yes. Um, well, the transition can be either quick or slow. If it's a slow transition, especially... In a democracy, as there's a movement towards uh, tax uh, shifting, then people will already adjust before the tax is changed because people will see that coming. Property values will adjust ahead of the time. Uh, if, if it were to be a quick transition, uh, if, if it were to be a, a quick transition, then <clears throat> I think uh, some people would have that. Most people would be net gainers. I think 80 or 90 percent of the people would have a net gain. Because uh, if they own property, what they have to pay more in land value tax would be more than offset by saving and not having to pay income and sales taxes. So for those few that have a net loss, uh, they could be compensated for their net loss. And, and so nobody really has to lose. There'd be so much overall gain to the economy that we could afford to compensate those with a net loss. And I was thinking for a moment that Perhaps there would be people who would bitterly oppose this measure because they would have a lot to lose. Yeah, a few property owners, especially if you own a lot of land that's not developed, that you're not getting a current income from. Because if you own most real estate is land and buildings, the typical homeowner, right, if he doesn't have to pay any more property tax on his building, no more tax on his wage, no more tax on interest from dividends and interest and so on, he would have a, a net gain. But for those few with net losses, they can be compensated. If they want to be, and I think the majority of very wealthy people would stand to gain from this, particularly nowadays where a lot of wealth does not derive from land That's, directly. Yeah, most people would have a substantial net gain, even the, the typical homeowner. So why isn't this being done or talked about? Well, there's the opposition by those who would have a loss, and uh, people aren't talking about compensation, but... There's always been real estate interests that have uh, resisted that, and by the way, they, it's one of the one of the largest contributors to political campaigns is uh, the real estate and finance industries. So they campaign to you know keep taxes off their property. There would be a transition cost in that if you have a lot of land uh, and and it suddenly gets taxed higher, the property value goes down. 
and if they sell it, they would have a, a loss. Uh, but um, the, so there's the special interest, those who have something to lose, but there's the general ignorance of the public that's the worst thing. People just don't know about it. Uh, and uh, we need like a, a book, like a, like before the Civil War, Uncle Tom's Cabin, or uh, in the environmental movement, Silent Spring, some book that will arouse the passion of the public. And what's remarkable is that Marxian ideas are still very much with us. Yeah. And they've been corrupted a little bit, but they weren't that great to begin with. Right. No big deal. And Das Kapital is not a very readable book, no. whereas Progress and Poverty is very well written, yes. especially the modern translations. Yes. Well, I shouldn't call it, say translations, uh, updates. Yeah, editions. <laughs> yeah, I've seen them. So it just it seems so strange to me that this uh, idea... Which was endorsed by so many very intelligent people like Tolstoy and Einstein has just disappeared. Yeah, it hasn't totally disappeared. But uh, see, Marxism or socialism has a superficial appear uh, appeal, and most people think superficially. They look at the appearance and not the underlying reality. It takes a bit of economic knowledge to appreciate uh, public revenue from land rent. And so Marxism has a superficial appear, uh, appeal. Like, you know, uh, uh, one of the topics today is income inequality. So it's very superficial to say, well, let's just tax the rich and redistribute to the poor. That's, you know, that, that deals with the symptom and not the cause, but it, it just seems, uh, like the, you know, simple thing to do. Uh, whereas think, to think about the causes and why these things happen, uh, that takes more thought and more knowledge, more analysis than people uh, are willing to to provide. So I, I think that's it. The Marxism is superficially appearing, appealing. That uh, here's these rich companies. Oh, here's these corporations. They're making tons of money. It must be at our expense. Let's go and uh, control them and tax them. See, it's very superficial uh, without any analysis of it. Uh, well, and their uh, focus is on labor, no, I know which that, is... Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm not saying Marxists don't analyze. They do, but the most of the followers don't. Which is a little easier to grasp, because land is somewhat abstract, and it's hard to visualize how much land there is in the world, but we all work, and we all know people who work. Yeah. And we know that not everyone is compensated for what we consider fair. Yeah. And, and if you own real estate, you think, uh, I own a house. See, you don't think about the land under the house. It's a house, and when you say house, you think of building. Yes, and that is a very important but subtle distinction. Yeah. And there have been a number of articles in the various George's groups on Facebook about the importance between land and housing. We call it a housing bubble, but it was really yeah. land mania. Yeah. As you may know, talking about why this idea isn't further widely, more widely known, uh, the economist Mason Gaffney has written a book called The Corruption of Economics. And he says that the, the classical school of thought that dominated economics of the 1800s, which did emphasize uh, the factors land and labor, uh, it turned into neoclassical economics. And part of that was, uh, you know, marginal analysis, thinking about 
marginal costs and so on. But a large part of it was that the three classical factors, land, labor, and capital goods, got got changed into a two-factor analysis, just labor and capital. Most, if you look at academic economic literature, it's all an analysis of labor and capital, right, with land left out. And so Mason Gaffney said this was a deliberate change. The universities around 1900, um, they saw Georgism as a threat to their interests because they were founded and uh, often the major contributors were people who had gotten rich from real estate. And the universities themselves had a lot, a lot of land ownership. So they wanted to counter this movement towards taxing land. They deliberately changed economic science to take out land and just have labor and capital goods. Then you had a few economists who then argued against Henry George and against the concept of, uh, you know, taxing land in a very misleading way. But those schools of thought were very influential. And so, and also as economics became more mathematical, it's a lot easier to mathematically treat two factors than three factors. Right. So the mathematics is a lot easier if you just say output is a function of labor and capital and leave out land altogether. Right. So both for these, uh, for these reasons, if you academic economics, what's taught in graduate school, what influences economists today, um, is to indoctrinate them into just looking at labor and capital and kind of not even thinking about land then I think you would get along with some of the Keynesians I know because you could all throw rocks at the neoclassicists. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's something, it brings up something, a memory of mine from my high school economics course when the teacher was talking about capital. And since that time, I ask every economist I meet, what is capital? And I almost always get a different answer. Yes, unfortunately. But, well, the word capital has, there's, there's three types of capital. So, the, and we use the same word for quite different things. There's, first of all, uh, financial capital. When a businessman thinks of raising capital, he thinks of funds, right? So money, bonds are financial capital. Then there's capital goods, which is an input into production. So when you're producing something, the tools you use, the machines, the building, the inventory are capital goods, right? And the third meaning of capital is human capital, which is the skills and education that workers have. Those are three meanings, uh, three different things using the same word capital. So, uh, so you have to really distinguish financial capital from capital goods, or economists also call it real capital. So capital goods are goods which have been produced but not yet consumed, cars, computers, Houses, machines, inventory, those are all capital goods. I think that was the most succinct answer I've received so far. Good. Succinct and comprehensive, so you get a gold star. I mentioned land mania. Have we covered why it is land and not the buildings themselves that contributed, or that contribute to these vicious cycles? Yeah, because uh, when property prices go up, the, the value of the building is based on the cost of construction. Uh, if you can construct a building for $100,000, uh, 
right? The, then older buildings are not going to sell for $150,000. They're going to sell at the cost of construction minus their depreciation for being older, right? And you can always make new buildings, right? And they will then sell at the cost of construction, you know, which includes profit and so on. So, so when during a real estate boom, when people are paying higher and higher prices for real estate, it's the land value that's going up. Now, land has no cost of construction. So its value is determined entirely by the demand for, for land, right? And so those values have no upper limit uh, up to the amount that speculators want to pay. And and also conversely, land value can go down to zero and the land will still be there, right? So what fluctuates is land value, land having no cost of construction, its value is determined by what people are willing to pay, how much they're demanding, how much... They're willing to pay for rent and land value. Yeah. So you mentioned you can always build a house. I was recently reading a book by Dr. Kahn about environmental economics. Typically when I mention this, I get groans or cringes from people who are not in that particular subfield. Now, Georgism also wants to place tax on natural resources. Would it be a green policy to do these things? Yes, it would be, because uh, if you pollute the atmosphere, what you're really doing is you are dumping on land, right? Land is, land is all natural resources, not just the solid surface we walk on. So the rivers are land, the lakes are land. So if you pollute a river, what are you doing? You are dumping on land, you're using that land or, or abusing that land, right? So you need to, to pay for that use, right? Which is the, you should at least pay for the amount of damage that you cause. So uh, a pollution tax is uh, complementary or, or it, you can think of it as a type of land tax because you're using up a, a natural resource. Uh, so yeah, uh, so Georgism would include both the real estate tax on land value, and the pollution tax on any kind of environmental damage. Uh, so if you pollute the air, the atmosphere, or also if you use up natural resources, when you uh, chop down a forest, there should be a payment for that too. So uh, payment to compensate for, for any depletion of natural resources would complement uh, and be part of Georgia's policy then it sounds like it's very complementary to the ideas of ecological economics. Oh, yeah. yeah, very much so, yeah. Because that is one of the things that they emphasize is measuring the loss yeah. that the biosphere takes when natural resources are depleted. That's right, and, and environmentalists also, in respect to taxation, talk about a green tax shift. The green tax is an environmental tax, like a pollution tax. The green tax shift would shift taxes off of income and goods onto pollution and land value. And uh, possibly those taxes would also encourage people to search for alternative energy sources. Yeah, so the problem today is all kinds of energy are subsidized, right? Uh, government subsidizes wind, they subsidize solar, but they also subsidize fossil fuels by not uh, making people pay for the pollution costs, right? And so proper pricing would then eliminate the subsidies. You would not need to subsidize solar. Or just let the market price each thing, as long as people are paying the full social cost, and let the market sort it out. You would then have 
less use of fossil fuels just because people are now paying the full price of using that. And then you would need a special subsidy for wind or solar. Let them stand on their own feet. If if it's really less expensive to use solar, then that would be invested in. But any sort of tax on fossil fuels would be very regressive, wouldn't it? Well, the well, you should tax whoever's generating that pollution, whether it's the car driver or the power plant. Uh, but uh, I. Rich people use up more resources than poor people, so it's not clear that uh, uh, pollution tax would be uh, regressive. But uh, even a dollar hike in the price of gasoline would put a considerable dent in a household's budget. Yeah, uh, they shouldn't tax gasoline itself. They should tax the emissions from car use. Mm. That would give people an incentive to reduce those emissions. You could either capture the carbon... You know, develop technology to capture the carbon or switch to a different kind of uh, energy source like hydrogen or or uh, electricity. Of course, electricity itself is not necessarily clean because you have to look at the source of the electricity. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, yeah, some people, for example, object to uh, tolls on roads because the poor people would be less of, be able to afford a toll than a rich person. Well, but you shouldn't let poverty get into the way of good environmental policy. If poverty is a problem, then deal with that. Either give the poor enough money to live on or prevent the poor poverty in the first place by, you know, letting them be hired without, you know, paying extra taxes. Sure. I mean, relying on innovation is not as silly as some people might think. And those innovations would quickly crop up yeah. if the incentive was there. Right. We, we now have the technology to actually measure emissions of cars as they drive by with infrared or with remote sensing. And you can then photograph the license plate to see who is doing that. And so that could replace smog tests, engine regulations, gasoline additives. Just charge people if they have emissions. They will then respond in the way that best way suited for them, either carpooling, using mass transit, changing their vehicle, or whatever. Under a Georgia system, there would be enough tax revenue to keep public transit at a local level, to keep unemployment benefits, maybe some sort of short-term welfare. All of these things would still be there. Yes, and, and mass transit would be efficiently priced under a Georgia system uh, with, with marginal cost pricing. In other words, how much does it cost to put one more person on a train? Practically zero in terms of the energy used. So therefore, public transit should be free whenever it's not congested. Uh, and that would fill up the trains and buses. And, and see, what we, we now have the opposite policy. We, it's, there's no charge to use the highways but there's a charge to use transit. If you did it the opposite way, make transit free, but charge tolls to prevent congestion on highways, right? Then you'd have a massive, a large movement of people from their cars to public transit systems. So only charge for public transit when it would otherwise be crowded, just high enough to prevent uh, crowding. Well, Attacks on carbon emissions definitely would be unpopular, but 
enterprising people would start using vans or some sort of larger vehicle yeah. to and, and, cart people around. Yeah. And, and it may not necessarily be unpopular if at the same time you abolish the gasoline tax. Because a large part of what we pay for gasoline is tax. Now you can buy gasoline tax-free, but if you pollute with gasoline, now you pay. I think that would have an appeal. And simultaneously abolish the taxes on alcohol and yeah. all the other fun things. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's. I think if you abolish them at the same time, yes. it would be a popular measure. So. Fortunately, at least according to Kahn's book, the majority of air pollution stays within the area, right. the local area, right. which is fortunate because that gives everyone an incentive to cut back on it. Right. On the other hand, the person who owns the factory or the people who own shares in it may live thousands of miles away. Yeah, well, uh, the popular thing now in Europe and a few other places is the uh, pollution permits that trade on a market. And that's a very artificial kind of market. It's like the, the taxi permits that people can buy if they want to go into the taxi business. It's a market, but it's an artificial market just because the permits are restricted. Uh, so. The, the trouble with uh, these pollution uh, permits is that, first of all, uh, if a company can, off, can, can, remain, can still pollute but uh, buy credits by, say, buying credits in some farm in the uh, tropics that's absorbing carbon dioxide, they're still polluting, right? So, and, and a lot of that is just a sham. So, uh, yeah, it's unfortunate that the cap-and-trade system has gained popularity because I think a straightforward pollution charge would be much more efficient and more geared to the actual damage caused by pollution. Right. I mean, it's frequently difficult to gauge it because the negative health benefits that people experience occur 10, 20, 30, 50 years down the road. Yeah. But since we're steadily learning more and more, we know now that lead, for instance, is really bad for us to breathe. Yeah, and I don't think it's a tragedy if the pollution charge is a little too high. How <laughs> much less pollution, less interference in global climates. Exactly, and it won't be but such a big deal because you'll have all of those other nasty taxes abolished. Sure. So they won't have that burden. They can be more efficient and more environmentally friendly. Yes. Well, I think we've just constructed a perfect world. <laughs> yes, the policies, if, if only people would listen to us, yeah. <laughs> now, Mason Gaffney is someone that some of my other guests have mentioned, and I have contacted him about converting his books to Kindle. Mm. I was told to con contact his publisher, which I still need to do. And can you tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, I've known him for a long time. He was a professor at the University of California, Riverside, just recently retired, even though he's uh, long past his 65-year uh, retirement. But, of course, in universities, you can, I guess, continue teaching as long as you want, as long as you're effective. Uh, but uh, he's, uh, in my judgment, one of the greatest economists now living. Uh, he's familiar with the Austrian school. He kind of, he combines some of the Austrian concepts of capital goods with the, the George's concepts of land and rent. He's uh, very good on economic history and, and the history of thought. Uh, 
he wrote the book, uh, most of the book, uh, Corruption of Economics. Um, he's an expert on uh, natural resources uh, and how to tax the use of natural resources like coal and oil, gas, and so on, forestry. Uh, and uh, so I've enjoyed uh, a lot of his writing and I learned from it. Yeah, and he's a good friend of mine. And are there any particularly important academic papers he's published? Um, I think his most important work is The Corruption of Economics. Um, he's written a bunch of articles on the taxable capacity of land. I can't remember the exact titles, but if you, you can look them up fairly easily about how much revenue can you get from a land value tax, which he says is more than adequate. Uh, and, uh, he's, he's written chapters in books about land value taxation that I have. That sounds like something many people should investigate because that was my initial reaction to Georgism as I was thinking, how would this work? Yeah. How could you possibly implement this? Yeah, because it seems much more confusing than an income tax. We know what a person makes and we know the percentage. We know what to take. Yeah. Uh, I think one of the uh, benefits of land value taxation relative to income and sales taxes is that the land value tax is not based on an event. The income tax is based on the event. When they pay you an income, when they pay you a wage, that's an event. When you spend money on goods, that's an event. You tax the event, penalizing people for a transaction. A property tax, even today's property tax, is not based on, on an event. Like when I bought the house... Right. Uh, I now have property. Next year, I pay a property tax, even though I, there's nothing I didn't buy. I didn't sell it. I didn't rent it out. I'm just living in it. There's no event, but it's still taxed. Right. So uh, what that means is you don't punish people for particular events, for selling something or buying something or, you know, making a trade. You, don't you do not penalize human action. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> it's independent of what you actually do. Whereas land is there, it is static, and it's likely to remain there as long as the ocean levels do not rise yeah. and kill us all. Right. The differences between property taxes in most localities and the way a Georgia scheme would work. Yeah. So it, the Georgia scheme would be very much like a current property tax, except you would exempt the value of buildings. When you have uh, property taxes, you already have assessors who are separately assessing the value of land and buildings. That's done routinely, and property appraisers, they know how to do this uh, from various techniques. So you have uh, one value for the building, one value for the land. And so the land value tax would function just like the property tax, except that you would exempt the value of the building. And now you would also ideally... Uh, make it a monthly payment. In California, by state law, the property tax is levied twice a year. So twice a year they send you a bill and you have to make a large you have to pay a check to the county and it's a fairly substantial check if you have uh, real estate. And so that's very visible, very painful to pay that. I mean I pay that. Uh, I have to make you know I have to put money in my bank account. It's a ha bit of a hassle. Whereas if you have an income tax, it automatically gets deducted from your paycheck before you even see it, right? You hardly know it's 
missing. All you know is here's how much money I now have in my bank. So they should make the real estate uh, tax on land value similar to the income tax in that um, bill it monthly, just like your utilities are billed monthly, and enable it to be withdrawn automatically from a payroll or from a bank account, you know, just to make it the, that way you pay by the month instead of having to pay a whole bunch twice a year. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, uh, you would have the county level uh, appraising the property, assessing it, estimating its value year by year. It'd be based on the current market value. And uh, so you'd know uh, that, you know, you'd have a monthly payment and you could plan for that. And, and for you, it'd be a fixed cost rather than a variable cost. Did more purchases, if you had more income, if you worked extra hours, there'd be no tax penalty. And its market value would be determined by what it, it, by adjacent lots of sold for? Comparable sales. What have similar properties sold for? That's basically what property appraisers do. They look at, like, it's the same as appraising jewelry. How much, you know, if you have a diamond of uh, one carat of certain qualities, how much have other diamonds? You know, you can go into the market and see what similar things are selling for. So, and it's easier to assess land value than the total property value. Because today, when you also have to appraise the property, the building value, you know, you have to think about the, if it had new pipes or painting or whatever. With land, it's just location and what similar properties are selling for. And, 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 and professional assessors would have a computerized map of the whole neighborhood. So you can see what each property has been appraised for and smooth it out if there's any irregularities. Uh, right, and someone could protest yeah. an assessment, but there would be a range within do that. a reasonable range. You can appeal your assessment just like you can in today's system. And uh, in Denmark, where they had a fairly high land tax, they mm -hmm. figured that uh, uh, the mo the best uh, if the appeal rate was more than two percent, then they were assessing too high. If the appeal rate was less than 2%, they were assessing too low. They figured a normal appeal rate would be 2%. There's always people who are going to protest their property tax. Uh, uh, so, uh, yeah, so they go to an appeals board, and if they're still not satisfied, they could ultimately go to a jury. I think that sounds like it would work, it would work fine in practice yeah. because – they can't lowball it so far that it seems absurd. If houses around you have sold for four hundred thousand and you're saying your property is worth twenty thousand, there's a bit of a discrepancy. And see, property taxes for real estate they can be a public record. You know, they're assessed by the county. You can go to the county and look up property values and compare yours with your neighbors. And at this time, we already have people doing these jobs. Yes, exactly. Yeah, well. So we wouldn't be creating anything no. new. We already have county uh, assessors, county tax collectors. The county level would be the ideal level because then some of the money could go down to the cities and the rest would be what's not cut by the county would be going up to the state and then the state could pass it on to the national government. It would be a trickle-up trickle up, effect. Trickle, yeah. <laughs> I like it. It might work a little bit better than trickle down. Right, right. And that brings up the thorny issue of ethics. Yeah. I wrote a book on ethics called The Soul of Liberty. 
in which I filled in what Locke, John Locke didn't do. John Locke had a theory of natural law, and he stated what it was in the Second Treatise of Government that that uh, you ought not harm others in their property, life, and liberty. Uh, so that's the proper way to phrase it. But he didn't really derive natural law, so I figured I'd, I'd better do it because he hadn't, he hadn't done it. And <laughs> uh, so, so it's uh, I, it's a deriv- derivation of what I call the universal ethic or natural moral law, uh, derived from the same premises John Locke used equality and independence. From that, you derive the natural law, whose basic rule is that it's morally bad to coercively harm others, where harm is distinguished from a mere offense. If you're just offending somebody by what you say, that's not a harm. So harm has to be an invasion to somebody's uh, body or property. But an idea can be dangerous. If you think, if someone's advocating, say, a very violent form of anti-Semitism or racism or whatever, it it, it becomes difficult to distinguish between thought and action. I mean, are they going to cause other people to act in this way, or are they not? Well, there's a difference between being biased against a group and expressing that and actually calling them to action. If you say, let's all, let's all go to the, his house and burn it down, that's different from saying, he's a bad person, or his religion is bad. Yeah, yeah, I can see that some types of speech can have uh, bad effects, but uh, overall, you have to look at the overall policy. If if you if you try to limit what people can do because you think their thoughts are negative, then you start restricting things that might not be so bad that you think are bad. So. Right, and there's always that small lunatic fringe that's bound to latch on to something and then do something violent. Yeah, but like, uh, you know, there's currently, uh, before the Supreme Court, a case where somebody had made threats on Facebook against a particular person, and so the Supreme Court is going to decide, is that free speech or not? So I, I think if a, a, a direct threat against particular people is not free speech. Right, you're expressing an explicit intention to do harm. Yeah, a, a threat is not a threat itself is harm. Yeah, a threat, uh, I'm going to damage you. That's already instills fear. That's already a harm in my judgment. And something that I've discussed with people who've been influenced by cultural Marxism. And it goes back to what we were talking about with nationalism earlier, is that there are some cultures, some ideas that are just not compatible with the sane and progressive society. So the question is, do we permit it? Do we permit the influx of these ideas or people from communities that may not exactly jive with what we think is right well, individuals should be free to practice their religion and express their thoughts. But when they then coerce members of their community, that's a different thing. So uh, you can only take culture. You should let cultures uh, express themselves as long as they're not coercively harming others. It's the same principle. So that uh, 
you know, if, if a family wants to uh, kill a family member because they've insulted their honor, that's morally wrong. But isn't there people who are born into religions and indoctrinated by them? And that seems like a big violation of individual liberties. Well, <laughs> every family is going to have a culture, or every community is going to have a culture, right? And and so a child born into a family is going to necessarily grow up with a particular language, a particular taste for music and art, a particular culture, a particular religion. So there, there, there's there's... There's no way to prevent somebody from obtaining a culture. And in fact, uh, you, parents want their children to follow in their own cultural patterns. You know, you want you want your children to be of the same religion you are. And there's nothing inherently wrong with that. Uh, but when, they're, when their creed involves a hatred toward others, then you have to be concerned. And they probably need to be not stopped, but confronted. And something I discussed with Dr. Glassman, who wrote a book on John Stuart Mill, was the matter of compulsory education. Where does that fall in your ethics? Uh, children need to learn. The, the most important thing children have to learn, should learn, is ethics. They need to become ethical persons. And they need, they, I think they have a right to an education that enables them to be self-sufficient adults. They should be able to read and write and do mathematics and, and so on. Uh, beyond that, I think uh, it should be up to the parents as to what kind of schooling to provide. So that's why I'm in favor of uh, vouchers, where the government does not directly produce education but gives a voucher to parents who can then send their children to whatever school they want to, whether it's a government school or a religious school or some other kind of private school or, or homeschooling. So parents should have uh, latitude as to how to educate their children, as long as the children are learning the essential things like ethics and, uh, you know, being able to read and write and do arithmetic. If a teaching children ethics or wanting them to learn ethics yeah. seems like a major infringement on their ability to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong and their parents to instill them with ethics. Because, I mean, that's a somewhat subjective field, what you think is right, what is wrong, what you should do with your life, what you don't. Uh, right, but if, if parents t uh, teach their children it's okay to steal because, you know, we're poor and other people have stuff, it, it's okay if you steal, you know, this is our form of redistribution. Um Well, I think that uh, natural law is not something that's based on any particular culture, but applies to all people. So they need to be confronted. You're teaching your child to, child to steal or to hate particular groups, and um, you're you're actually violating the rights of the child to 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 have a life that's in harmony with with uh, natural law. Right. And once the child acts, then the state can yeah. reprimand yeah. him. Yeah. So that would eventually come. But instilling a child with any sort of ideals is like coercion, because children are malleable. Yeah, but uh, I would say in general that um, children should learn to respect the rights of others. And if their culture is not doing that, then they, they just need to be confronted. They just 
the community should go up to them and say, what you're doing is just, it's wrong. It's just wrong. I say, we don't take kindly to people who don't take kindly. <laughs> That's it. Exactly, yes. Uh, we do not tolerate intolerance. Yeah. It is a problem where you have, uh, you don't want to interfere with, with families and parental decisions. But uh, on the other hand, uh, some parents do abuse their children or mistreat their children. So that, uh, and, and I think uh, the problem is, see, if you had a village or if you had an extended family, that would, you know, say the uncles or grandparents could then intervene and say, hey, parents, you're not doing things right. But uh, you have a nuclear family that's on its own, surrounded by a mass society that they don't know and a bureaucracy, that that's what makes it difficult. Yeah, and a lot of these ideas sound like they would work very well in a suburban environment or in a small town. Yeah. But cities breed apathy and yeah. coldness. Yeah, but if you could have a, a school choice, then those parents that are concerned could could send their children to a place that's uh, not subject to you know bad influences of uh, violence and drugs and other things. I and our school system in general is a little bit outdated. It's not giving children the skills they need to succeed. And that's one of the reasons why I've thought that it might be best if companies like Google and Amgen mm -hmm. or any other high-tech company took the reins and founded private schools. Yeah, that would be very good, yeah. Mm -hmm. Then they would be training workers and giving them the skills that they need that's right. for very good jobs. That's right. In Germany, they have an apprentice system where... Uh, say high school age students who don't particularly want to go to college, they can be they can learn a trade and be apprentices. So I think we need more of that kind of thing. There's too much emphasis on college. I mean, I teach in a college, but there's too much emphasis on everybody has to go to college. Uh, let's give people scholarships and so on. Uh, whereas uh, uh, we also need carpenters and electricians and barbers and you know plumbers. And and we could use people who are very good at writing Python rather than people who know a smattering of Shakespeare and economics and this and that. Yeah. So, thank you again for your time. And I hope that I can have you on for some sort of conference. A, together. Or, or a debate. Yeah. Yes, it, yeah, I I would like to call it a discussion, but if it turned into debate, that's fine. I'm just the moderator. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.